You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 186, Curtis Sargent and the Catalyst for Movements. Get ready to be inspired, my friends. Welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you downloading. Um, today, we have a really exciting guest. I'm, I'm just thrilled that he's here. He's the author of a new book called The Only One. Uh, he is Curtis Sargent. Curtis, welcome to Halfway There. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate having you here. Um, tell us a little bit about you. Obviously you're more than an author, so you you have started a bunch of ministries and uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you are right now. Yeah. So um, my whole life in a sense has been kind of focused on missions because my parents were missionaries. Yeah. So I grew up in Taejon, South Korea through elementary school and then middle school and high school in Taejong, Taiwan came back to the States, went to school, and went back overseas and served at first focusing on China and then later kind of all over the world, especially among unreached people groups. And nowadays I sort of wear three different hats. One is that my wife and I run a little um, missions and disciple-making training center here in Dadeville, Alabama, where we live. And um, we do some trainings here, and then I continue to travel around the world doing that training as well. And then the second hat is um, we help um, lead uh, an online training ministry that just does introductory training on multiplying disciples in simple churches, and that's called Zume. Z-U-M-E, and um, can be found at zoomeproject.com. And then the third hat is I'm part of the leadership team for a coalition called 2414. And that is a network of what we call movement practitioners. So we seek to have reproductive disciple-making and church planning and so our goal is to have people using those approaches in over 100,000 different specific areas by the end of 2025. And um, long ways to go, but we're off to a good start on that. And so those are sort of the three ways that I spend my time. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so one of the things I'm really fascinated to learn from you is uh, this world of missions, it's its own little world, right? It's... Um, certainly the, it's not the experience of every Christian, you know, in the little suburb that I live in, for instance, um, it's, it's got its own kind of thing and its own passion behind it. And I love that. So I can't wait to hear more about that and how, you know, when you think about reaching into different parts of the world, different people groups, what that experience is like. So, um, let's go back though. And I would love to talk through your story. So you said you were born overseas. Your parents were missionaries. So you grew up as a missionary kid. That's right. Yeah. What was that like? That's one of those, um, interesting questions. I always <laughs> ask 
in what aspect? Yeah. You know, do you mean culturally, linguistically, geographically, you know? Yep. In regard to food or weather or... <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd say all the things. So I have a couple of curiosities. One, like just paint that scene for us, what your experience of life was like, because... You you probably just thought of it as being normal, like wherever you were, right? Which is totally different than the normal that I grew up in Iowa with, right? Um, but then also, there's probably a spiritual climate to that. So I'd love to hear that part as well. Yeah. Um, so from the cultural aspect, um, in some ways, it is normal for a lot of people because the sort of unique characteristic, although it's not unique, is growing up in a place where you don't represent the majority culture. So a lot of people experience that. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of people are not from the majority culture, wherever they're at. And, you know, they're the family that they're born into doesn't speak the same language as the common trade language or national language or whatever. So from in that respect, it's a common experience, but the spiritual aspect is a bit more unique in that um, I think it's it's more intentionally spiritual in a sense. The you know the reasons for being there are not accidents of history or whatever, but um, it's you know your parents have located there for the express purpose of having a spiritual impact on others, and because they are followers of Christ. And so I think that that spiritual aspect of it is a little more unique than the cultural one, actually. Yeah. Was it, did it feel strange to be in a culture where you were in the minority? Um, as you mentioned, um, you know, that's what I knew. So, yeah. Um, in a sense, no. <laughs> yeah. You know, the fish is not aware of the water it swims in. You know? Right. Yeah, totally. That's why I was curious about that. Uh, interesting. Okay, so you were growing up in this atmosphere. Did you know, um, I assume that your parents taught you about Jesus and you found Christ very, very early. There was no, I'm guessing. Um, I did. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I know some people have stories of dramatic you know, walking away from the Lord or anything. I never really experienced anything like that. Um, but there was one sort of key inflection point in a sense. Um, this, I guess it was the summer before my sophomore year in high school. Um, I was at an all night prayer meeting with some friends and really felt a clear call to focus my life and efforts on those who had not had a chance to hear the gospel. So, you know, what today we would call unreached people groups. And um, that was very clear. So from that time forward, that really was the primary focus of my life in a sense. Mm. Take us into that experience. What was it like? So you was an all night prayer thing. So you're obviously... I mean, nobody agrees to do that without having a little bit of passion for the Lord, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I we just had this time together, and um, 
Did you plan it? Was it like you and your friends? Was it like a big event? What was it? Yeah, it was just me and a few friends. Mm. I don't know. There were probably a dozen of us. Okay. Or something. And interestingly, some of us have kept in touch. Just today, I've been in repeated text interaction with one of the people who was there. So, oh, very cool. Um, you know, some some lifelong friendships came out of that. Yeah. What was the feeling of being called to unreached people like? What was, like, how did God communicate that to you? Uh, yeah. Just uh, an overwhelming burden. Mm. And um, I don't know how to phrase it, but perhaps um, a deep compassion on those who had not had an opportunity, you know, to hear the the really sad thing in a sense is those people who don't have the opportunity, you know, people who have the opportunity and reject that's sad, but you know, in a sense, yeah. they bear some responsibility in that, but much less so for those who just have no access to the gospel. Right. Right. So you want to go, Okay, so that kind of led you. Where where'd that take you once you experienced that? You went. Yeah, so my assumption at that point was that it would be in a restricted access nation because at that time, most of mm. the very unreached people groups were in restricted access nations. So my assumption was I would go as a tent maker. That is a person, you know, who made their living um, in you know, just a, a quote unquote secular field, though there's, yeah. you know, maybe no such thing, but, um, and then using this, you know, your discretionary time and opportunities on the job, reaching out. And so, um, I focused a lot on learning all I could about tent making and then pursuing degrees that would allow me, you know, to serve. Yeah. And, some of those restricted access areas. Where, where'd you go? Well, so the intention was um, to serve in China at their um, Olympic Development Center. In oh, cool. Where, where'd you go to school? Like, where did you? Uh, University of Arkansas. Oh, okay, cool. In both undergraduate and graduate degrees. And um, so that I did them in um, biomechanics. Uh, again, okay. planning to work in Olympic development. And right when I was ready to go, the Tiananmen massacre happened. And so suddenly, you know, Americans were kind of persona non grata. Yeah. It got a bit tense with the U.S. at that point. So then I had to re rethink things. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how sometimes God uses those world events to redirect us a little bit. Right. So where did you go after that? Well, I still ended up focusing on the nation of China, mm. but um, instead went a route of working for a British NGO. So they were part of the United Nations NGO section. Yeah. And NGO is a non-government organization. Yep, sorry about that. No, sorry. I'm just making this, taking care of my audience. Uh, that yep. does work, and like usually humanitarian work in places. Yep. So uh, ended up being with that NGO for 13 years, 
And um, that provided me a platform to do what I was hoping to do. What did you see God do when you were working? You know, is there kind of describe the whole experience for us as much as you can? Yeah. The first five years I focused on a specific unreached people group and, um, you know, started from very close to zero and the Lord ended up catalyzing quite a large, um, movement, um, to Christ from among that people group. And so what does that mean? Cause I don't think like quite a large movement. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, back then it was, you know, multiple thousands of people coming to faith, which when you start from nothing is significant. Yeah. Today there are about um, just shy of a million people in that people group that are following Christ. So, um, and the total people groups about seven million. So, well, you know, that's that's statistically shy. significant. Yeah. yeah. So, um, after five years, it was really to the point where, uh, you know, I wasn't needed anymore. Um, I had sort of done what I could. So then I began at that point focusing a lot more effort on equipping others to do what I had done among other people groups. And to some degree, um, that has been the case ever since then. Mm. So I started doing that sort of full time in 1996. Um, and, um, you know, until today, that's been a good part of what I've done is equipping others to do that type of work. To start movements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Can can we dive into that a little bit? So the, the idea of disciple-making movements, can you just like define that for us and tell us what exactly that is? The big idea in movements is that every disciple is called to be a disciple-maker. William Carey is considered by many to be the father of the modern missions movement. And so he was referring to the Great Commission when he said, the promise is coextensive with the command. I guess he actually said the other way around. The command is coextensive with the promise. Meaning, um, in the Great Commission, we're commanded, Jesus is speaking to his followers and he says, make disciples, right? Yeah. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all of, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. And then he says, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So what Carrie was saying was the command to make disciples is coextensive with the promise that Jesus will be with us. So if you believe that promise is to every follower of Christ, you also have to acknowledge the command is to every follower of Christ. Right. That all of us are to make disciples. And um, so movement thinking takes that very seriously. Or another way to phrase it might be um, the whole idea of the priesthood of the believer. Yeah. Um, Pretty much all serious Christians um, will say they believe in the priesthood of the believer. 
but then we don't always act like that. Right? <laughs> right. Sometimes we act like there's two classes of people, those who are paid to do ministry and those who pay them to do ministry. Right. You know, and that's sort of uh, how we practically behave. So in movements, the idea is every disciple makes disciples. And so that results in multiple generations of disciples being made fairly quickly. And so in movements, we're seeing population growth outpaced by kingdom growth. Wow. Whereas that, that isn't the case, you know, otherwise. It's not the case in the United States. That's right. And even globally, even though the church is growing faster than it has ever grown and is the largest percentage of the world population it's ever been, wow. it's still not quite keeping up with population growth. So there are more non-followers of Christ than there have ever been at any time in history hmm. today. Um, but in places where these movement approaches are, are being employed in those areas, we're seeing the kingdom grow faster. Yeah. That's the big picture. Yeah. So practically speaking, um, I like to think of it sort of like a, a family of ducks, right? So if you ever observe a family of ducks, you've got the mother duck out front, either paddling or waddling along. And generally, the duckling's single file behind her, you know, following. So right. if you think about it, in a sense, only the first duckling is following the mother duck. The second duckling is following the first. The third follows the second, and so on. So in a family of ducks, to lead a duckling, you don't have to be a mature duck. You just have to be one step ahead. Mm-hmm. And the kingdom's kind of the same way. In the kingdom, there's only one mother duck, and that's Jesus. All the rest of us are ducklings. But we can lead other ducklings. That's why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ Jesus. Right. And each one of us needs to be the same, be able to say the same thing. Follow me as I follow Jesus. So we focus from the moment someone chooses to follow Christ on equipping them in a whole range of ways that enables them to live a life like that. So because we want them to be contributors rather than merely consumers, that means they need to be self-feeding. So we focus on ways to equip every follower of Christ to be able to interpret and apply Scripture every follower of Christ to have um, a holistic understanding of prayer and how that mm. is intended to function in the Christian life, to equip every believer to know how to work within the body of Christ so that corpor corporately we can follow him, to equip every follower of Christ to understand the call to persecution and suffering and how we can intentionally respond to those in such a way that results in kingdom growth as opposed to causing us to be hindered or stopped. Um, we focus on giving every disciple in a sense, uh, like a, a set of glasses 
that has two lenses. One that focuses on their ongoing network of relationships, their friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, and how they can steward those relationships and continue to invest in those people to draw them to follow Christ and then equip them to know him better and follow him more fully. And then the other lens on every, everyone else with a special emphasis on the least, the last, and the lost, because these were the priority for Jesus himself. Yeah. You know, or God in the Old Testament, same thing, the focus on the least, the last, and the lost. And so with some of those principles and intentions in mind, we're very um, specific in how we equip people in those range of, of areas in order that the church will multiply and disciples will multiply. And so that, um, the, the most complex part of that is what we call the training cycle. Model, assist, watch, and leave. So we're very intentional in taking people through these various phases yeah. and helping them see generational growth in their own ministry. So that's a very fast flyover, but that's generally that, what we're talking about. That's perfect. I think that helps our audience um, because whether no matter where they are in the world, it's interesting, and I think it'll help them think through, it helps me think through, okay, what's actually happening in other parts of the world that I don't know anything about. So um, what I'm really interested in is some of these, ex some of the experiences you had that helped you uh, develop, not just the, the principles, but just develop personally, right? So how did, um, how did you learn to relate and uh, interpret scripture uh, on your own? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I don't know that anybody's ever specifically asked me that before, mm. but um, generally um, I started noticing how often in Scripture, and not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, there was an emphasis on obedience and how many mm. times that was tied very directly to our love our love for God, you know, our love for Christ, our love for others, so often those were integrally intertwined. And um, so then I began to, you know, consider what, what does it really mean to learn something or to know something? And it's pretty clear that it's not just head knowledge, right? Right. Um, I love that the word for obedience in, in Greek, like in the New Testament, is just the intensive of the word for hear. Yeah. You know, akuo is to hear, and hupakuo, like super hearing, is to obey. Yeah. And really, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about, um, you know, not just knowing the Bible, but living a life following God. So in my book, for example, I 
use the word theopraxy, which is God practice, you know, God living. Um, a lot of people are familiar with the terms orthodoxy and a little bit less so orthopraxy. So mm-hmm. orthodoxy is right, right teaching, right? Right knowledge. And the orthopraxy is right living. So it is important that we not just talk about orthodoxy, but orthopraxy. But even with orthopraxy, it's possible to do the wrong, the right thing for the wrong reason yeah. or with the wrong power, like doing it, you know, our own self-effort. And so theopraxy is an attempt to say, yeah, we need to know the right thing. We need to do the right thing and we need to do it for the right reasons and by the right power. And that in a sense is proper hermeneutics. That is interpretation and application of scripture. So when we start to focus that way is that we balance these, these aspects. So I think of it as a three legged stool. You have one leg that's knowledge, one leg that's, you know, obedience or application, and then one leg that's passing that on to others or sharing with others. And all three of those are really clear in Scripture that they are included in God's intention for us. You know, the Abrahamic covenant from the very beginning was was blessed to be a blessing. Yes. And so the passing on aspect is really important. And so if you have a three-legged stool and these aren't balanced— it's useless, right? If they're not of approximately equal length, that stool, you know, yeah. might as well throw it in the trash. It's it's useless. So um, that is, in a sense, the principle around which all of these aspects, including interpreting and applying scripture, yeah. are structured. So you can see a little foreshadowing of that even in the table of contents in my book. So um, something I haven't seen in other books. But after each chapter in the table of contents, there are five checkboxes. The first one you can check off when you've read the chapter and processed the, you know, kind of thought or discussion questions. The second box you can check off if you've actually applied it to your life, right? The third box, you can check off when you've taught it to someone else. The fourth box is when that person has begun to implement it in their lives. And then the fifth box, when they've taught someone else. So you're seeing at least to the third generation yeah. reproduction fully. And then you've, you've you know, quote, in a sense, mastered the chapter right and um every time we read scripture we should be thinking in those terms every time we pray we should be thinking in those terms in all of our interactions within the body of christ we should be thinking in those terms whenever you know so all of those aspects i talked about yeah that's in a sense the framework and once you start um, thinking in that framework, that paradigm, it really impacts how you look at Scripture. 
I'm curious because I th- I think you're totally right. And I'm what I like to do is connect, um, connect the because all these principles are great, but we all experience those things all the time, right? Like we we have those times when we go. So like I'll I'll give you an example for me. One of the reasons I wanted to be a pastor is because pastors get a lot of attention, right? <laughs> they get a lot of time. They get they get to say the things and they get to be very creative. Uh, well, that's not exactly a good reason to be a pastor, is it? Right. The Lord's using my training and all those things in the ways that He wants to. But that so I, th- I thought so that for my in my experience is how I learned what you were talking about. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, and you know. It seems, and now I'm speaking more specifically of kind of American Christianity, that somehow we've gotten to the point where we value head knowledge so much. Yes. That's how we we gauge someone's, you know, quote, maturity and so on. How much you know and how much you do. Yeah, well, yeah, but not necessarily how much you do of what you know. <laughs> right. Even, but just how much you perform, you know, um, we, we can forget that Satan knows more scripture than any of us. Yeah. What's that mean? <laughs> right. Know, nothing. If he's not responding in an appropriate manner. Right. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I wanted to ask another question about, um, prayer because you kind of went through a few things. Scripture was one prayer was one. So how did you learn to pray? I think you called it in a holistic way because so my experience growing up, uh, and I think this is pretty true. I don't know if it was in your family, but basically prayer was intercession. 99% of the time, there was no other, no sense of listening, no sense of having a relationship with the Lord. What was that like for you? And how did you learn to do something different? Yeah, I think um, a key inflection point in my journey in that was um, reading a really old book called Practicing the Presence of God Yes, by a guy named Brother Lawrence. Yep. He was a monk. And anyway, the idea was to live with a constant awareness of his presence. And um, I hadn't really thought of prayer in that way up until reading that book. But um, once I read that book, I began to see that that made a lot of sense. That from scripture, we can tell God is a communicating God. Yes. And he is at work and he is speaking constantly. The question is, do we have eyes to see it? Do we have ears to hear it? That's the question. But he is constantly communicating. And once you um, realize that, it's just a matter of growing in your, you know, your ability to, to be aware, you know, to seek to be hearing what he's thinking, what his intentions are in every situation that you're in. Yeah. And that suddenly, for me, changed the equation in a sense. Yeah, I love that. Is there a time God surprised you with something you were aware he was saying in a situation? 
Um, I, I can't think of a specific in- instance, but a general category that I have grown a lot in over the past, you know, I would say 20, 28 years probably, where I've really um, grown in this is in regards to what I mentioned about persecution and suffering. Mm that um, I, I don't remember who said this quote, but there's some quote that goes something like, um, God whispers in our pleasures and shouts in our pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think there's some some truth to that. Um, and it's remarkable how God in many, many ways works what the enemy might intend for evil into good through pain and suffering and agony and, you know, all of, all of those things that we think of as negative um, in God's sort of upside-down kingdom. Yep. Those are intended for our growth in His glory. Right. And... Um, the more acutely you become aware of that, you notice it more and more and more all around you in big ways and small ways. And so that would be a general category where I've come to appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, I'm just so struck that even Jesus had to go through suffering. Right. And there's that, that verse in, uh, I don't want to butcher it, but I might, in Hebrews where it says he learned obedience through suffering, like Jesus learned obedience through suffering. What does that mean? Wow. In the book. And then there's another one in Hebrews that says he was made perfect by what he suffered. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is absolutely a way. Um, so some of the spiritual writers, you mentioned brother Lawrence. I'm, I'm a big fan of Ignatius of Loyola and, um, others, but they, they all, talk about or um john of the cross right the dark night of the soul like they all talk about this there's always some sort of desolation sometimes it's called hitting the wall depending on what what you talk about but we have to have that i think what happens is god takes those he he uses the suffering to take the the dross i like to use the you know like the the crucible of if you're refining gold the you melt it which is painful that's that's chemically chaotic right and then the dross comes to the top and he skims it off the top but that happens has to happen in a in a context of suffering so how have you suffered like where is there something that you can go i went through this experience and this is what i learned about myself and about god yeah um most of those stories are kind of long so let me summarize one specific okay Um, This was when we were working among the unengaged group in in China. Um, I had horrendous long-term health issues. My wife became paralyzed. Um, Our son started having um, health, you know, health issues. Our unborn daughter we were told was going to have horrible birth defects and would not survive long past birth if she lived till birth. And 
a bunch of other <laughs> specific attacks and things all happened wow. at the same time. And um, the long and short of it was um, first, it um, helped me take first steps on a much needed journey to battling pride in my life. Um, how so? Yeah, because I realized how helpless I was, how weak I was. You know, so the like the verse verses in John 15, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Of course, I knew that. But in my heart, I really felt like that was nothing amazing, right? You can't do anything significant apart from me, um, which is ridiculous. It means exactly what it says. Nothing. Yeah. You know, apart from his grace and his enablement, we can't take our next breath. It literally means nothing. You know, so um, that would be a, a quick summary yeah. of, of that because I was completely helpless to deal with any of these things. And um, secondarily, it changed the entire um, attitude or reception that we were having. Up to that point, it's like we couldn't really relate to the local people. But once they saw us completely, you know, devastated in a sense, mm. they started relating to us by, you know, pitying us, by, you know, just, yeah, pity is probably the best word for it. But anyway, it changed how they perceived us. And it's after that happened that they started to respond to the gospel. Oh, interesting. And so God used those horrible circumstances to achieve something in me that, you know, never would have happened apart from that. And for his glory among the people group, something that never would have happened yeah. apart from that. How did so it, that, you know, how, how did it dawn on you that you had to surrender to the Lord in this? Well, I just got desperate enough. Yeah. You know, I got low enough and helpless enough that it, you know, I finally saw the light. Yeah. <laughs> In a sense, so right, and I think that's what has to happen, right? That this happens—it's the testimony of believers through the centuries, through the millennia—that you have to come to a place. Even Peter, right? He had to come to a place where he was at the end of all of the things that he knew. Jesus restores him, and then he can serve, right? Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Um, you've done some other amazing things. We're kind of coming up on on time, but um, like because you've been training people who go all over the world and start these movements, right? And you've been involved in them. And I know that, um, and I don't want to talk about it from a place of, of pride, but it is kind of a gift that God's given you. So what do you make of that? Um, yeah. And it's um, a privilege because, you know, it, it's, 
quite obviously nothing that I do. It's God working through others. And yet I have the opportunity to observe these amazing things God does through these other people. And um, it's, in a, in a sense, also um, you know, a lot of times in the kingdom, we look at people who have a lot of authority or, or whatever and think, you know, that's great. But this type of ministry is nothing like that. Instead, mm. you're serving them. You're answering their phone calls and their questions and their, you know, and it's constantly serving others and you have no positional influence, you know, I mean, authority and all of that, but you have amazing opportunities that you would not have otherwise. So in some senses, it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate gig in terms of fun because you have very few of the um, burdens of you know, leadership like we usually think of it, you know, the organizational and the, yeah. that type of responsibility, that's a huge burden. It's a big sacrifice, people who have that kind of position. So I have very little of that, and I have a lot of the upside being able to rejoice in how God's using these other people. So it's it's kind of a, an amazing chance. Yeah, very cool. I think what I hear is God's gifted you in a certain way to help make disciple makers. And then you get to go do that without the sort of, you call the burden of the, of, you know, what we hear like a 501c3 or whatever, right? like having to run an organization, but, right. um, but God's still using it and, and it's, it's profound. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. That is fun. Is there? Can you give us? Because I want to paint this picture. I don't. I don't think without hearing some of the definitely the thing with um, the group in uh, early on, where there's a million of them now, is is a good example. Is there another example of how the way you've trained people has led to a, a, a movement that just sort of astounded you? Oh, there there are a bunch. Um, the biggest ones are um, in China and India, for sure. But those are by far the biggest nations, so yeah. it makes perfect sense. But um, I have, have trained people who have done church planting now in every country and territory on earth, you know? Wow. So, um, and personally have done live training events in well over a hundred of the nations. So, and most of those are, you know, more the res- what we think of as, you know, the hard places. So it's just been a remarkable privilege to know people in so many places that are sacrificing, you know, laying down their lives in a sense um, for the kingdom. So. Wow. Well, so Curtis, I think we could probably talk forever because um, I know you have more amazing stories. Um, but I wonder, so we talked a little bit about the only one. You talked about the idea of uh, theopraxy and kind of just developing, mastering the material and sharing it. Um, why did you Why did you write this book? And then we'll tell people how to get it. 
Yep. So I sort of wrote this book primarily for a Western audience, um, largely because um, these kind of movement approaches have mainly been developed and much more widely used in, you know, what we think of as more pioneer or frontier mission areas. And um, I, a few years ago, felt the Lord calling me to start focusing half of my time on the U.S. <laughs> and when I started doing that, I started really regretting that I had never really made any efforts to make this kind of disciples here. My whole life had been focused overseas. And um, so, you know, I wanted to begin to make these principles and approaches accessible for people here because the reason we do we don't do these things isn't because we've decided not to it's because we've been doing what we've been shown and what we've been told and we're doing you know for the most part yeah people are doing it doing the best they can they're doing what's been expected of them and there's so much more possible and so in kind of in the same way that I had this lifelong goal to focus on those who hadn't had a chance to hear the gospel. In a sense, now it's the U.S. is in that position, not in terms of the gospel in general, but in terms of understanding there could be more to, mm. you know, our spiritual walk than we've been shown or told about. And so just wanting people to have access to it. And so that's one reason for writing the book, just to sort of say, you know, if you haven't been living this way, you should look at this. <laughs> yeah. You know, because there's so much fulfillment and reward and joy in it. And um, so that's kind of it. Yeah, I love that. I'm convinced that the Lord right now is inviting us, and I, when I say us, just us Western or Western Christians or United States Christians, um, to experience the deeper life in Christ that, uh, to go further than we have in the past. Cause it's, um, and I'm, I'm sure there's all kinds of historical reasons and there's all, all kinds of things that go in there, but I think the Lord is, is, is doing that invitation. And I think you're part of it. I think this book is part of it. Um, and I love That's that. One reason that we've made it available for free. In yes. Ebook, and by the time this goes live, it'll be up in audiobook format for free. Awesome. And, um, because we want as many people as possible to have access. Yes. And so, where can people go to find that? Because it's this is a book you have to get. So you got to get the Kindle version or the ebook version. Yeah. Theonlyonebook.com. Okay. It'll take you to where there, there's a link that'll take you there. Perfect. So, yeah, the only one book.com. That's amazing. So, you can just get that book. And if you want to go a little, go deeper, practice practicing, um, the only one will take you there. 